ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. Recognize we're kind of savoring this last chapter of Hebrews like a good hard candy, just wanting it to last and hopefully enjoying what the Lord has to say to us in this wonderful book. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, our focus this evening is verse 5. I'd like to begin reading in verse 13, or verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, children, here are your questions for this evening. First, what does it mean to covet. Two, people need to make money to live, but should needing it or having it control our lives? Three, Christians can be happy or content even if they are poor. How is that possible? And four, who provides all that Christians need for this life and the next? Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you always for your word. And the fact that you have spoken to us is beyond our comprehension. The fact that you have provided these things for us in your written word is a wonder to us and such a tremendous blessing. You've given us all that we need for our faith and life. And as we turn our attention to these few verses, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through them tonight. And we pray that you would have all of our deepest affections. And Lord, that we might be reminded that our full devotion and our dedication, first and foremost, is wholly to you. We have no other gods before you. Lord, teach us from your word tonight. Send your spirit in a special way as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it may be out there, but I've never seen a bumper sticker that says, I heart money. I heart money. It would seem inappropriate to almost everyone. Something just doesn't fit right. Even if at heart there is a love for money, even if someone's life is all about money, someone probably would not be brazen enough to actually, actually advertise, I heart money. Wouldn't say that probably to another person. We're not supposed to love money. We're not supposed to love things like that. I think even people who don't know the Lord have a sense about that, that that would be a misplaced object of affection, and indeed it is. In our passage, uh, we've already been taught things about love. 
we've been exhorted to love. Now, we know from Scripture that the first and foremost thing is to love the Lord. The second thing is to love our neighbors. We're confronted with this issue of love again and again in Scripture. Recently, in our passage, we've been exhorted to love the brothers, love, have brotherly love. We've been exhorted to even love strangers, to show hospitality, and to love those who are burdened and those who are imprisoned. We've also been told that there ought to be an appropriate love between men and women, especially in marriage, that we're also supposed to love purity. So there's a lot about love in this section in Hebrews. The word used in verse 5 has the same root as the first ones, the phileo, or that brotherly, that Philadelphia, if you remember, sense of the word, the phileo. And this uh, takes the word and puts a negative beginning on it, and it ends up being ah, without, philo, love, and arguros, which is the word for silver, be without love for silver. It's all one word. That arguros, you might recognize, ag, the symbol for silver. Be without love of silver. Literally, do not love currency. Do not love money. Be unconflicted. Be unconflicted. We're going to look at a number of passages tonight. Most of them will be very familiar. The first one I want us to turn to is Matthew 6. Might as well begin with hitting us hard. Jesus tells us that there is an impossibility to be conflicted having basically two different gods. Turn with me to Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Sharp contrast. Interesting, the contrast here is between love of God and love of money. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... You cannot serve God and money. Jesus could not be more clear. This is not a deep theological issue. This is a deep spiritual issue with some very practical implications for us. So it's a very serious thing we need to consider. And again, we're going to look at some familiar passages. But what we're working on tonight is repressing covetousness and cultivating contentment. So the first one is covetousness. Uh, we're told in scripture that that covetousness is idolatry so i put here free flee f be free from idolatry that's typically the common summary of how this passage is dealt with this is an issue of coveting so first of all we need to know what coveting is and basically i know that we know it means wanting something that someone else has or having more or wanting to have more than we already have, or wanting more than somebody else has. It has to do with lusting after things that we don't necessarily have. Now again, we need to remember, it doesn't mean that we can't want things. 
doesn't even mean that we can't want things beyond our basic needs, but it does mean that if we're lusting after those things, that that is covetousness, and that is the 10th commandment, do not covet. And a number of things are listed there. We can't minimize the seriousness of covetousness. We can't minimize the seriousness of covetousness. So here's where Paul describes it as idolatry, but listen closely. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sex, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the first ones, right away, we would shrink back from and say, those are things I definitely don't want in my life, but somehow we very easily ignore this covetous spirit that sometimes wells up inside of us. So we need to know what it is, we need to recognize it in ourselves, never minimize the seriousness of it, and we need to flee from it. If we're harboring covetousness in our lives, if it's sort of this controlling thing, with the help of God, we need to seek his help to be delivered of it. When it creeps into us, as I'm sure, maybe it doesn't creep into you, but as it does with me, creeps in time and time again, need to turn our backs on it and run. Flee, flee from idolatry. And so the, the bigger picture is this idea of covetousness, but there is this issue of currency. And I, I like the fact that Paul uses that word. Do not have a love for silver. That actual, that actual currency that buys us the things that we need. Now, this is for the kids. Uh, when I, sometimes these things are embarrassing. This is not talking about coins or paper bills. It would be silly to love those things, but when I was a kid, we used to get coins. If we found pennies, we'd shine them up and kind of cherish them a little bit. Uh, this is even weirder when I got a dollar bill that was a little bit dirty or anything. I would go into the bathroom secretly and run it underwater and I'd take this hard scrub brush and a thing of ivory soap and I'd scrub that bill clean and I'd rinse it clean and I'd put it in a book and it would get dry and it would be nice and crispy. And I just loved that little dollar. And once I got that crispy little dollar, I'd go down to the five and ten and I would buy 100 pieces of bazooka bubblegum. Which I lost my dollar, my dentist definitely gained from my purchase, but that's not what this is talking about. It's not like cherishing the actual thing of money, but it's that idea of pursuing money above things and for things that, that control our lives, really. We can't let this love of money, this, this thing that is in us to want more and more and more to control our lives. That was a temptation for the Hebrews, for the Hebrew church. I'm sure it was tough for them uh, because they were in jeopardy of losing everything because of their faith. And they had to reconcile the fact that if they lost everything, if they lost everything that they had materially, they had to ask themselves, would they still love the Lord? And would they still be content with what they had if everything was taken away? Now, we deal with the same kind of temptation. The temptation remains 
our setting is somewhat different. We all find ourselves in different status. But we do want to ask ourselves a similar question, though. If we had everything taken away in a moment, in an instant, what would we think of God? Would he still have our affections? Would he still have our love? Would he still have our trust? good questions to ask ourselves this whole issue of money is such a big part of the american dream when people talk about the american dream they might refer to freedom they might refer to some other things but big part of the american dream is getting getting that money it's not by the way a poor man's sin rich and poor alike deal with covetousness Now, the poor have every right to work their way up, but it can easily become the focus of their life to gain things and to become obsessed with gaining things. Now, the rich can have a very similar problem where they just want more and more. I haven't taken much interest in this recent murder trial, but I heard a little snippet of it the other day, and this man who's being accused of murdering his wife and his daughter, was making a lot of money from other people, some of it through his legal business and some of it through stealing from people in his legal business to support his drug addiction and other things in his life. And one of the cross-examiners, the prosecutor, was asking him, were you living a wealthy lifestyle? And he pushed him a little bit. This is almost all of the trial I saw were you living a wealthy lifestyle? And the man would not answer the question. And so he pressed him some more. Well, how much money were you making? And he asked one particular year. And he said were, he wouldn't answer that question either because he knew what he was making so-called legitimately, but then also stealing money. He admitted to stealing, but the lawyer pressed him more. Well, were you living a wealthy life? And he still wouldn't answer the question. Well, how much did you make in this year? Well, I made a million dollars. Plus. Okay. Well, what did you make the next year? Well, I made a million dollars plus. So you wouldn't call that a wealthy lifestyle? No. Not necessarily. That's not what I would call it. And I'm, my mind, my head is blowing up going, really? A million dollars plus a year, and you don't consider that a wealthy lifestyle. The point is, in his context, in his deluded mind, in many different ways, that was not a wealthy lifestyle. I guess it's relative. But the thing about people who do have is they do want more. Happens to middle class. We have these categories, upper class, lower middle class. There are people who are miserly, who just want to hold on to everything they have. There are people who have debt, major debt, and that just makes life go so fast because all they can wait for is their next paycheck. You see, we can get so obsessed on money, so hung up on money, so hung up on stuff that we need more and more money. And we obviously need money. There's some commercial on the radio. I, it's a quote from a movie, and I just think it's funny the way it sounds. I don't know what the movie is. I don't care. I just love the quote because it's stuck in my mind. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. It makes no sense, but it's a basic truism. I don't know why it's called money, but everybody does 
We need money, so we need to work for our money. And nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with attaining it. But again, if it becomes an inordinate object of our affection, if it becomes a goal of our life, if it becomes the focus of our life, there's a real problem. And if it distracts us at all from our devotion to God and our trust in him, then it's a real problem. And it can very easily become an idol, competing for our affections for God. We become so dependent on having those things and wanting more that it can be real problematic. Remember the problem of the rich young ruler? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Rich young ruler had more than one problem. One of his problems was self-righteousness because he thought that he could keep the law, but Jesus granted him that maybe technically he did keep parts of the law, but there was a problem. And my understanding of the passage is that he basically had another God, and until he got rid of that God, he could not follow Jesus. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 18. Truly I say to you, I'm sorry, uh, that's not where we want to be. Thank you. Uh, Again, I say to you, if if you agree to, what? Oh, I'm in, it's 19, thank you. I love relying on the congregation to help me do things. Okay, here we go. So this man comes up to Jesus, and he's asking him some questions. Let's pick up in in 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the man had to get rid of what I believe was his God, his idol. He might have striven to keep the commandments, but there was something in his life that was worthy of worship above God himself. It's very interesting that the disciples were somewhat perplexed and asked, what we would think is a very weird question. Well, if even the rich can't get into the kingdom of heaven, who can? And Jesus gives that wonderful answer. With man, it is impossible. But with God, it is possible. So here you have the rich ruler. What if you're required to give up everything? Because it's obstructing your devotion, your relationship to God. Would you be willing to do that? To willingly give it up? But then, again, what happens if it's taken away? What will be your response? And then what happens when we're taken away? What happens when we're taken away? Here's the problem that the guy with the storehouses had. 
Luke chapter 12, and if I have the wrong chapter, don't be afraid to call out and tell me the right one. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's this man, he's doing well, saying, talking to his own soul. You talk to your own soul, he says, soul? It's all good, let's just keep keeping this up. But when he enters into the presence of God, God says to his soul, you fool. You spent your life attaining things for this life, and now there's an eternity. You can't take any of it with you, and not only that, you have nothing in heaven. Because your God, and your gods were perishable. Very sobering. And so we need to take these things seriously. And if money becomes our idol, we need to repent. The flip side is we need to learn to be content in every situation. In every situation. Learn to be content. Trusting the one who is forever and who promises things that will remain. Now here's my problem. I'm not going to pretend that I've conquered the sin of covetousness. But when I look at people who are content, I covet them. Isn't that an irony? I covet people who are content in their lot in life, who are content with the things that they have. I lack nothing. But I have in me probably what some of you have in you, the capacity to covet. But then it becomes very strange when I look at that contented brother and sister who trusts in the Lord in a profound way and who's content in their situation. I covet that. Is that a bad thing to covet? I don't know. But that's something that we should all want. Trusting the Lord. The Lord tells us that he'll always be with us and always care for us. Someone wrote down for me, money doesn't provide, God provides. We can get it so backwards sometimes. Do you have confidence that the Lord will provide? Do you have confidence, first of all, that the Lord is with you? That's where this started, this section started. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you remember the words that are repeated so often throughout the Old and the New Testament that the Lord is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us? 
and he will always provide for us. Do you remember what Jesus said about the sparrows and about the flowers of the field and how God provides for them and how much more valuable are you than those things? Promises of God. I'm going to say that honestly, sometimes the promises of God almost seem a little bit questionable to us. Not because God isn't faithful, not because God isn't true, but because we're sinners. And we don't see things the way that we should. We focus on earthly things. We, we put so much stock in, in provision that we think that the height of God's blessing, to stick with our context, is material goods. And if they're not there, we sometimes forget that God is the one who provides for us. Can't help but think that there are many who are severely impoverished who literally don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Who are believers. And I think that if people who live in our context have a hard time trusting the Lord for the way he provides, what must it be like for them? but I know that many of them in Christ are so content and so trusting in ways that would put us to absolute shame and have a focus on the Lord that we should covet. Most of us are sufficiently provided for materially. Well, again, what would you have if everything material was taken away from you. An old righteous rocker put it this way in one of his songs. You can take away my kids, take away my wife, you can take away my job, you can take away my life. You can take away my house, take away my Ford, but you can't take away the Lord. Take everything away, but people, if we have Christ, we're in the hands of God. We have everything. We really do have everything. And that should drive us to the place of sweet contentment. Something that the Apostle Paul somehow managed to figure out. Well, he grew into it. I'm sure that it just didn't happen instantly. It's a couple more passages for tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Lord willing, down the road, we'll look at this in the Timothy series. But Paul has learned the secret of contentment. Nope, let's skip that passage. Let's go to Philippians. Let's go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, and then we'll just have one more passage after this, so keep your Bibles handy. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul learned those things. And isn't it interesting that he, he, he states one of those passages is that, that is probably one of the passages most widely taken out of context. This doesn't have to do with the sports ability. doesn't have to do with all these other things that we can attain to. What does it mean that I can do all things through him who strengthens me? It means that I can endure and trust in the Lord and be content no matter what my circumstances are. And that's what Paul had learned. What a blessing. And that's what we need to learn. To throw off the love of money, to throw off covetousness, to throw off idolatry. And in all circumstances, to be satisfied. Not that we don't have ambitions. I hate when people get that wrong. But that we're satisfied with our relationship with the Lord and the way that he provides. If we're in his hands, we can endure anything. As long as we stay focused. Remember that the author of Hebrews kept pointing his readers and pointing us to, to greater things to come. Greater things to come persevering in this life because we know that we're the Lord's and there are even greater things to come. Well, I want to close with a passage that I've probably closed just about every sermon I've preached on money. And that's from Proverbs chapter 30, if you want to turn there. And I think this is a prayer. It's a prayer that we should all embrace. Proverbs 30, beginning in verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of of my God. That is a God-centered, trusting, content kind of prayer. May that be our prayer as well. And let's pray. So Lord, you've given us all things in Christ. And we pray that we would focus on the kind of all things that matter. Surely you've blessed us in the material realm. You've provided for our household, some more than others. But Lord, we know that you are our provider, and for that we're deeply thankful. But Lord, help us to never get our focus so fixed on the provisions and on the stuff and on the money to get the stuff that we would forget you. Help us, Lord, to flee all covetous idolatry. Keep us from the love of money and help us to become more and more deeply in love with the God of our salvation. You have given us riches now of eternal life in communion with you. And you've promised us heaven where the moth doesn't eat and the thief doesn't steal. You've given us forever. We thank you for that blessing now. 
and we will thank you for it forever and ever. Amen.